Welcome to another episode of the Untangling Web3 podcast. Today, we're delighted to have Stefan Kimball joining us on the show. Stefan is the CEO of the recently launched Web3 trading and investment platform, M2. Before his latest venture, though, Stefan was COO at Commercial Bank of Dubai, having previously spent over 20 years working in the technology consulting world for the likes of IBM and BCG. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Stefan. Thanks a lot, guys, for having me on the show. No, it's exciting. We've been trying to get you on for a bit now. You've got a really busy schedule and lots of exciting things happening at M2. And I know we'll hear a little bit more about that. But Jack just gave a little bit of a hint of your background. You've worked at some of the biggest firms in the world, IBM, BCG. It'd be really interesting to hear a little bit about your early career. And then we'll go into a little later how this led you into Web3 and your current work at M2. Yeah, sure. Look, my, my background has been in traditional uh, finance, of course. I've, I've been working as a consultant, as, as you mentioned, as an, as an IT service provider for banks and financial institutions, always in the realm of digital transformation, trying to figure out how to use technology to provide better services, more secure services, and more robust services. And that, I guess, naturally, at some point, sooner or later, had to lead into, into the Web3 space, which, of course, is a whole new realm of, of new technologies enabling a, a whole you know, different range of services and possibilities for users. Okay, well, that's exciting. I always, I think consultants, they are at the cutting edge because they work with so many different companies. They kind of have a little bit of insight across the board and it gives you a little bit of an advantage over, say, one company just working on one thing. So from this like traditional finance background, traditional IT background, what led you into the world of Web3? Right, it's exactly that angle. So as you mentioned, as a consultant, you're less bucked down with it with a day-to-day running a business you always think about what can do what you can do better what can be improved that's it's a different way of looking at it but there's a certain you know you hit a limit at some point if, if you work in it obviously a strictly regulated space with technologies already relatively mature a market that's very mature and if then a new range of, of technologies enters that space coming from a completely different angle different mindset different philosophy it just opens up such a huge amount of possibilities it, it ends up being a much more exciting place than the trap fight to be honest yeah makes sense i think uh, we've had that, uh, a similar story from lots of people actually working in the consulting world and then wanting to break out into this new exciting arena of web3 right that's been something that we've all seen growing over the last few years uh, i want to touch on firstly though what do we actually mean by this whole market right we, we hear the terms digital assets virtual assets all the time and i think different people have different views on what that actually means so as somebody who's now running a kind of investment trading platform in this space and having moved from the traditional kind of tech world how do you see that term what does it mean to you what is this market and economy that we're talking about with digital assets yeah, look, I mean, the, the key aspect of Web3 overall is obviously moving from a centralized world to a decentralized world, from a sphere where everything's controlled and managed by a few centralized entities and, and run on centralized technology to a world where things are run in a decentralized fashion, where there's not a dependency in the same way on a centralized player and traditionally also from a dependency on the government, which was the original intention behind Bitcoin, right? It was after the global financial crisis. Guys wanted to get away from government control and from traditional banks. And that's how, how Bitcoin was created by and large. And I think that's still the, the philosophy and the uh, the intention behind a lot of the digital assets. But the, the key thing, of course, is the technology it runs on, which is distributed ledger and blockchain technology. 
I think um, yeah, it's good to come at it from that technology standpoint. When me and Jack have found in like our discussions and our research that when people use the term decentralized, a lot of them conflate it with you know anti-government and all this kind of stuff. And it's it's actually really fundamentally about the technology, right? About removing unnecessary intermediaries. Given your background in traditional finance, you know how many unnecessary intermediaries there are in TradFi. And distributed ledger technology, Bitcoin, they provide a new mechanism for interacting in the most efficient way, in a more stable and resilient way in terms of the technology. And I think one of the things that we're seeing that really takes advantage of that is digital assets and representing ownership of digital assets, exchanging ownership of digital assets. And I just want to understand, you know, you're at the forefront of this. What is your view on the role of digital assets in the modern economy? Look, I mean, you're raising a very interesting point. The original intention was to get away from intermediaries and and governments and and bad players who charge too much and and offer too bad services, right? That was the intention. And I think a lot of the OGs and the guys who've been around in the space still see that as as a primary target, or at least a very important target, the, the whole philosophy behind that. I think now, 15 years later, I think today is the 15th birthday of the Genesis block um, of of Bitcoin. So now 15 years later, um, as we're trying to roll out mass adoption, we we need to convince people that may have less of a focus on that aspect of of digital assets. At the end of the day, what people want is is great service, good products, at a good price, at fast speed, at a high performance. And, And the reality is, Blockchain has not always delivered that. I mean, if, if you look at some DeFi possibilities, DeFi platforms, often the user's, user experience is a bit clunky. There's uh, 24-word passphrases. If you send something to the wrong wallet address, it, it might be lost in limbo forever. And, and likewise, if you've ever paid a thousand bucks for a gas fee for an Ethereum transfer, it's it's not always smooth and great. So I, I think the key aspect that that we we all need to work towards is to find those areas those use cases where where digital assets are actually superior or continue driving the development and the service offering that truly is superior to what we see today in in traditional finance only then can we achieve true mass adoption And and that's probably a case that is very relevant in certain use cases in certain countries and for certain user groups but not everything might equally be applicable to everybody globally to all or possible use cases. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up though early on. It's quite refreshing to hear someone who's actually you know, working on a company and, and on a really fantastic project, really focusing on the customer experience, the user, the end user at the end of the day. Like I think me and Jack often say it's been to the detriment of the Web3 space that so much of it has just been pushed by techies, for techies, you know, I've got this blockchain, it means immutability and all this stuff. And then you try and explain what immutability means to an end user who's not a techie. And they're like, well, I don't care about this. Like, how much does it cost? How quick does it work? What does the what does it feel like effectively? And I think that's really been to the detriment of Web3 companies. And you see like, you know, ChatGPT right now and AI, the thing they've done really well is the user experience. It's really refreshing to hear that you're concentrating on the end user. I just want to pick up on something that you mentioned there. You said, okay, it's all about finding where are digital assets superior. Could you give us some insight into where you feel digital assets are actually superior right now? I'm obviously focusing mostly on on the area of finance, right? And I I think two aspects, and there's different use cases to that, is I I think people look at it originally as as a means of payment. Again, that was was one of the key aspects of of Bitcoin. It's also a matter of, of value transfer, sending money or value from one person to another. 
And the third area people look at is, is obviously as, a, as an investment asset. I, I think where it's performed exceptionally well is, an, is as an investment asset. That's what attracts most of the attention so far. And a lot of the, the, the users that have been in, in, Bitcoin, in Bitcoin or crypto overall so far have been focusing on that aspect. Of course, it's highly speculative so far. There's massive up and down movements. But if you look at it also at a, from a long-term perspective, how Bitcoin has performed, I, I keep using Bitcoin as, as the most prominent example, but similar aspects apply to other um, currencies, of course. If you look at it over, over a long-term perspective, it's outperformed any other asset class, whether we're talking about one year or three years or five years, 10 years, obviously. In the long run, it outperforms all the other asset classes and it's, it's negatively correlated to most other asset classes. So from, a, from an overall portfolio investment perspective, it makes sense to have a certain allocation in that to increase overall performance, but also to reduce risk in, in a non-correlated fashion. So that, that's, that's probably the most prominent use case. I think as, as a transfer of value, especially when it's stable coins, uh, especially in, for countries that do not have a very robust banking system, it's also preferred and uh, it's, it's also very um, well performing. As a means of payment, I think we still got some way to go. I still don't know how many people still or already pay their pizzas with bitcoins <laughs> or, or other assets. So it's a bit of a clunky experience. The other two, we're doing a lot better. Yeah, I'm really glad you bring up that, that kind of dichotomy between is bitcoin a payment system? Is it this electronic cash? that it was marketed at. And I, I'm really glad you said, you know, at the time of recording, this is the 15 year anniversary of Bitcoin's genesis, right? It's crazy that we're that far away in time now. And it also seems like we've strayed a little bit from that original vision. People primarily, as you say, treating Bitcoin as this investment class. Funnily enough, I even saw Jack Mallers recently saying that he's completely leaving the fiat world and he wants to pay with everything in Bitcoin now, where if you're not in El Salvador, it's pretty difficult to do that, right? The experience for that <laughs> good, is, good, is... Good luck to him. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly, you know. So I'm interested, why do you think we've gone down this kind of path and why do you think it's it, we've ended up in this state where Bitcoin is primarily treated as an investment vehicle and then we've had to transition to things like stable coins, as you say, for more of the transfer of value. Do you think there's still demand for using Bitcoin for payments uh, in the future? Or do you think it will live on as this kind of investment speculative asset in the future? It's hard to predict. I mean, you have Lightning Network, of course, that's meant to make payments and, and transfers easier. I think so far, it's been hard to really connect um, Bitcoin or crypto assets to the real world. It's still a sort of niche offering that attracts people who are drawn to to speculative world of investments that that can sort of live in that in, in that world and in that niche, and be very successful in it, but we, we haven't seen mass adoption um, and, and and acceptance by merchants to be able to pay something. Even with stablecoins, it's hard to pay a lot of things these days. And I, I think one of the main reasons historically why that hasn't happened any further is the lack of regulation. Um, and I, I think that's that's probably going to be one of our topics today. It typically is. Historically, we have, I mean, obviously, one of the beautiful things about the world of digital assets is initially a lot of things were tried out in a bit of a, a gray area or, or an unregulated area, and that, that led to problems later on. But in, in order for the traditional world and for the offline world to really accept crypto as a means of payment, you need certain rules in place, regulations in place to manage that. And those have not necessarily been there in most countries so far. We're now entering a new phase where in Europe, we have Mika, Hong Kong, Abu Dhabi, of course, where, where, where we are located, are at the forefront of rolling out that regulation and making it possible. But I think it'll still be some time 
till we see a full acceptance and an ease of using digital assets in the real world space. So I think we'll see more of an area where in the digital world, in what's usually called the metaverse, but which covers really a lot of things to use or in Web3 overall to use digital assets. But it, certainly in the old world, in the brick and mortar world, you just need the regulations in place in order to, to facilitate mm -hmm. that. So you've talked about kind of financial instrument, you know, it's cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, all these kind of things. But and you've also mentioned about real worlds and assets separately. And I think a kind of a conversation and a term that's being used more and more is real world assets and the tokenization of real world assets. I think one of the estimates I saw recently was actually from your former company, BCG, said that they think that the asset tokenization market, real-world assets specifically, will be around 16 trillion by 2030. So it's a huge market. What is your understanding and what do you think the opportunity is of, say, tokenizing real-world assets? Well, I think it's extremely interesting. I mean, the verdict's still out, it's still early days. It's one of the exciting ideas. We had NFTs in the last cycle. Now we need something new that now that the NFTs are all down. Real-world assets is, is the new, I think, hype. But I think it has merit. Just, there's just a lot of investment opportunities that in a single size are too big or too hard to get to in, in terms of investing in big real estate, be boats, be art, uh, and other things that are hard to invest in for typical retail investors at least. And tokenizing them, fractionalizing them, and offering them with easy access, I think is a great approach and a great idea. We'll certainly explore that space uh, in 2024. I think that it's got great potential. How big it will be, we'll see. Mm. Yeah, you see all these numbers being floated around always in the billions for various people yeah. estimating and it always is kind of hard to, to grapple with. But I agree with you that I, I do see a lot of more value in this real world assets approach or this philosophy. I think I see generally as being a trend away from digital art and NFTs to actually, as you say, making those illiquid assets in the real world more liquid. That's the key thing. We saw for example, with Constitution DAO, okay, it failed and it was part of this whole DAO structure, but it still showed how people could come together and make this thing, which is the Constitution, much more liquid as a potential investment mm -hmm. opportunity for people who could never have accessed it before. Okay, it was an experiment that maybe didn't go quite right, but it shows the potential of the Web3 world in giving access to these assets to a wider, a broader spectrum of customers. I think that's why lots of these bigger traditional finance companies, right, see the value there. Do you think that we're going to see this kind of end state of all the traditional financial assets and then tokenized versions of them alongside the alternative assets, let's say the crypto assets that we're talking about, digital assets. Do you think that people are going to be looking to diversify their portfolios in the future across all this spectrum? Or do you think we're quite a long way still from even these real world assets being part of big balance sheets in the future? It's a good question. I, I think, see, see, most investors or users, I don't think, look at this so much in terms of what the underlying technology is. They, they look at it more from the perspective of what the, the investment uh, proposal or proposition is and whether that's attractive, whether they can afford it, whether it's liquid, whether um, it's, it, it's fungible, th those kinds of things. And as long as new offerings that are interesting are released and are being offered, I think there'll, there'll be demand and opportunity for it because, as you mentioned, it allows people to diversify and reach out into areas that today they're not able to reach out into. Again, the, the flip side of a lot of what's on, on blockchain and distributed ledger today is it's typically still where, where performance is required and privacy is required. 
it's still trickier because it's out there, right? It's, it's visible to everybody. So if it's investments that are meant to be kept private and less visible, people might not want to put that on the blockchain. If it's something where high performance is required, real assets typically don't do that. But if it's if I'm on the payment space, high performance is usually required. Today, as of now, that's harder to do on blockchain. So I think there's a space for both for traditional centralized offerings and for digitized offerings and, and distributed offerings. Both have their merits and, and both have their use cases and customer groups that might be interested in them. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up as well. Like the privacy versus openness and trust is a constant wrestle that institutions are trying to, to grapple with. I think we're seeing like the term Web 2.5 being used a lot, where a lot of, say, companies and institutions are testing things out on private networks, not the big public networks, with probably the goal of once they feel more comfortable with blockchain and once maybe the regulations in place, they will transition toward the public blockchain. I mean, because that is probably in a lot of ways, the ideal end state, because it does allow trust. And I think there's maybe a, a misunderstanding in a lot of ways about what goes on a public blockchain, for example. It's not like, you know, if I transact on Bitcoin, that everyone knows who I am, what I bought and all this kind of stuff. You can be pseudonymous. You can hide the transaction information. It's just you reference, say, or fingerprint some of the information so that it can be verified at a later date. But it's really interesting to see big institutions trying to get the, to grip with this without the regulation being in place right now. And I think that's a really exciting space. Um, for the next year, hopefully. So I want to come to your work. Jack has mentioned briefly around M2 that it's an investment and trading platform. I think it'd be really great to hear about how you would describe M2 and what the journey's been so far. Yeah, sure. So M2, as, as you mentioned, is a relatively young crypto investment platform based in Abu Dhabi. What we do so far, uh, our starting proposition is, is two legs predominantly. One is trading. So we offer spot and futures trading of around 35 assets so far and growing, of course. Uh, and the other part is our, our investment side of it. So far, that's our flagship offering is our earn program. What that really means is as you have digital assets, you can put it on the platform into earn plans, which works similar to term deposits. So we offer up to 10.5% in Bitcoin, 10.5% in Ethereum, a bit more on, on USDT and other amounts and other platforms. And that's really the main attraction, I think, so far that I get asked about the most people have come around a little bit from the trying to trade and get rich fast overnight, which was more the trend in 2021. And, and as we have different customer groups, you know, different types of investors on the platform who seek passive income and who hold Bitcoin and want to hold Bitcoin on a safe platform that's regulated and that offers additional yield, that, that's what we do. We offer that additional yield in a safe and regulated platform. Interesting. So how do you fit in then to the kind of broader space of your crypto exchanges and your other kind of platforms. Are you seeing this as kind of a hybrid play between the, the kind of centralized crypto offerings and the complete kind of other end of the spectrum, the full DeFi offerings? And, and are you planning to kind of meet one of those markets in particular in the future? Or are you more of a kind of general wide play for the average kind of crypto investor? So we see ourselves in terms of product offering, we want to continue to grow the offering to have a one-stop shop for crypto investment needs, Start starting from buying and selling it, but also to all types of investing. We'll, we'll soon launch accumulators, aggregators, structured products, both to probably the more, more assertive investors, retail investors, as well as institutions, family offices, asset managers, and let's say long-term-minded in investors. That requires, at the moment, the way that the market is structured is there's, that has both the exchange element, obviously that requires strict regulation and regulatory approvals in place, 
um, as well as on the other side, um, the, the asset management capability and, and product suite to cater for that market segment. Yeah, that's really interesting. So is this your, that's your consumer niche then? Is it you want to go for, say, the more stable, secure, safe market right now? Because it was really interesting to hear early on that you were all about, okay, we need to meet consumer demands. We don't just plug things in for the sake of plugging things. So I assume that you understand what your consumer niche is. And is that the market then? Is it creating the safe environment for investors that want to actually feel comfortable and confident operating in the space? Yeah, so the, the, the product offering, simply said, is a high yield on a secure platform, right? Yeah. I can promise very high yields all day long and then, you know, it'll never be paid. So what I look for as an investor, I want high yields, but I want it mm -hmm. on a secure, transparent and regulated platform. That, that's exactly what we do. Just to clarify, we're not just for consumers. We, we cater for both retail, which at least in, in my terminology would be the consumers, but we also do that for institutions and professional investors, as well as asset managers and family okay. offices. That makes sense. And how do you actually make it a safe environment in practice? Is it just to comply with regulation or is there more to it than that? That's the foundation of everything. So Abu Dhabi, for instance, which is our home base, has one of the oldest regulatory frameworks um, globally. It's, it's uh, almost six years old now. So it's a very proven, battle-tested, very rigid and very assertive regulatory framework. So following that already ensures there's the right transparency. There's a lot of safeguards in place. There's safety mechanisms in place that no, not every player in the market has today. That's a big part of the foundation. Of course, there's a cybersecurity element. That's industrial grade best, best practices we're following, all the way from, from external firewalls to internal wallet systems, cold storage, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But then the, the, another very important piece, and as I think one of the learnings from 2022 is we try to assemble a team that has the right experience, both from, let's say, the digital space, digital natives, as well as guys who've been battle tested and, and been lying in the trenches of traditional finance for long enough we've, we've seen global markets collapse who, who know what it means to really build risk management and controls in a way that's built to last uh, and robust so that team regulatory framework and and of course the cyber side of it in combination is what makes us a safe a safe platform yeah, that's really good to hear that you you're combining knowledge in both the traditional finance and the kind of web3 finance worlds right because as bad as things got with the likes of ftx last year and the year before things have been worse in the traditional finance world too so it's good to know yes. that you've got people who are thinking about worst case scenarios that could that could affect this injury as it as, as it grows right because we are gonna it's hopefully gonna get bigger and bigger over time as more adoption increases so the size and the problems that can occur will, will also increase so it's refreshing to hear that you're, you're taking this hybrid approach to how you make things secure on the cybersecurity element you mentioned as well, because obviously that's a hot topic when we talk about crypto assets and especially when we talk about things like custody, right? And how much exposure your customers might be given to actually controlling or, or being responsible for securing their assets. How do you balance that demand with them to between giving the users control and, and, you know, putting some onus on them, but with the customer experience that we talked about, right? Because that often is the root cause of a lot of the issues we have with customer experience. Where do you fall in terms of how much onus and, and responsibility you want to put on your customers versus, you know, doing a lot of security for them on their behalf? So far, our offering that's life already is we taking that, that responsibility on us. So if customers deposit assets on a platform, it's our responsibility to make sure it's safe and it's secure. Um, again, we do that through wallet systems, to, through custody systems, through cold storage and other cybersecurity means. 
what we plan as well is third-party custody as one of the future offerings but then again it's with a partnership that has less responsibility on the customer because again if you look at ogs the the people who are very experienced in DeFi, they, they find to to work a ledger wallet or their own metamask and, and their, their DeFi instruments the vast majority of investors either can't do it doesn't want to do it doesn't want to bother with managing all that they they want to put their assets somewhere and, and be able to trust and rely that the service provider they're using keeps them safe. And that that's exactly what we want to offer. Yeah, I mean, I've been stung by the whole individuals owning their wallets and their keys. I had like some money wrapped up in Exodus and then changed my phone over and lost this, the, the seed phrase and all this kind of stuff and then didn't have access to those assets. So I personally know that, yeah, people want the, maybe the custodial model where someone's managing it and they can trust that someone is managing it. It's a bit more Web 2.5, but I see value, especially now when there's so much naivety and misunderstanding of the space. You want to you know, put your trust in someone that actually understands the technology behind these things. So I completely understand the reason reasoning for that and that leads me quite nicely on to my next question obviously we've got you on here we're definitely going to talk about all the etfs that are currently being discussed like everyone if you don't know what the blackrock etf right now you've been living under a rock for the past like year basically i'd like to get (laughs) i'd like to get your take on it stefan how significant is this going to be what do you think the impacts are going to be what do you think the outcomes are going to be it's a big topic look it's the key reason why i and majority of the market is extremely bullish about 2024 if you just look at a total market size, Bitcoin market size right now is a market cap is probably around 900, the right 900 billion mark, mm-hmm. give or take. I think it's, it's down today as well. But anyway, it's, it's roughly the, the, the size of it. If you look at the size of, of liquid assets that can enter the or liquidity that can enter the market just based on those ETFs, we, we, we're talking about multiple trillions and even if just a small percentage every year actually is injected it, it'd be completely game-changing to the size of the market it's a multiple of several x that bitcoin mm-hmm. should grow just based mm-hmm. on that injection that's just that alone you add to that the pure fact that all of a sudden it has legitimacy so far the traditional finance world especially in the u.s been hammering the story against crypto, both politicians as, as, as well as we, we still see some CEOs of large American banks uh, <laughs> carrying that story, <laughs> a, few, a few last survivors. Um, but with all of this entering the market, you will have a whole different level of legitimacy uh, for, for crypto, which again, gets more both retail as well as institutional investors to in, inject their assets in, into the space. And then other elements this year, like the halving and, and another phenomena that all concur at the same time so i I think it's absolutely game-changing I'm glad. I think everyone does. And I think, yeah, to mention one of the CEOs, it's obviously Jamie Dimon, who's still talking about it, despite um, JP Morgan actually being an authorized participant of the BlackRock ETF. It (laughs) it is mind-blowing to see him saying things like, if I was in charge, I would close down Bitcoin. And I think one of the nice quotes I saw about that is, you can't close down Bitcoin. You can just close down your opportunity to invest and be involved in Bitcoin. And that's one of the beautiful things about it, right? It can't be controlled in that way. Yeah, you see a lot of people playing this game right now of do as I say, not as I do, because they're saying one thing and then it looks like they're doing something quite different in the background. And yeah, you're right. I mean, 
the different markets are clearly embracing what's happening in a very different way. We saw years ago how New York basically removed all its access and opportunity in the Bitcoin space very early on with the bit license. And it feels a little bit like the US could be going down a similar path at the minute. In terms of other market events in the last year, we've seen so much happening with the wind down of FTX, the recent events with Binance, all the ongoing SEC, CFTC, DOJ stuff. There's a new thing every week, it seems like, right? How, how significant do you think the goings-on have been in America? Because obviously you've chosen to, to set up in the UAE in Abu Dhabi for a, a variety of reasons. But was that a big factor, what's been happening in the market with your choice to locate there? I'm interested kind of why that was. And also, do you see a lot of the other market participants also gravitating towards uh, different areas in the world now that the US is taking a slightly more crackdown approach? Yeah. So for, for ourselves, we're a bit lucky because when we started, that was mid or early 2022 when the decision was made to be in Abu Dhabi. It was, was pretty much driven by the, the fact that the UAE is, is a very crypto friendly country. Overall, the, the government is very positive about it. And especially Abu Dhabi and the ADGM as a jurisdiction is, as I mentioned, has one of the oldest regulatory frameworks in place globally. It's very respected around the globe. So it seemed like a, you know, a very supportive environment to, to set ourselves up. That decision came before a lot of the collapses happened. So we just got a bit lucky on that front. Mm. Uh, I, would, I would have chosen the US at that point already, because as I said, the, the foundation of, of everything we do is we want to be regulated and complying with the rules, because that's a prerequisite for a lot of our investors to even come and work with us. Uh, and the US doesn't offer that possibility. And I'd, I'd love to go there. I'd love to offer our services to the US. Right now we can't, because there's no rules to follow. Uh, there's just, just enforcement, as we all know. But what we see from other players, I mean, you see the news, Coinbase is now trying to set up, I think in other jurisdictions, they're also coming to the UAE, they're coming to Bermuda. Kraken does the same thing. I was with Kraken for a while. I was part of the, the mm -hmm. team that set up the operation in MENA. Yes, of course, US players try to build a second leg to stand on because, because it's, it's hard to predict what's happening in the US and how fast it will happen. I, I think they'll come around eventually, but nobody knows how fast it will happen. Uh, even from Europe, we see players moving to the to the Middle East now, specifically to the UAE, as as service providers gravitate to places where they can do their, their business securely uh, and offer the services that, that the customers expect in in a in a in a secure and regulated fashion. That's fascinating. I'm really glad you know you've been so candid about that because it's great for us to hear from someone who's actually building such a business in the space to say you know we'd love to be in America, but the conditions are just unsuitable. Not because of what the the law the rules are, it's because the rules aren't clear. That the play the playing exactly. field is not well defined. I think we have a similar problem here in the UK. So Alec and I are both based in London, and it's been a similarly hostile for a long time. Just being a crypto business, right, has been very difficult, even if you're not offering a lot of the services that are maybe under question in the US at the minute. The UK is in a similar position, and I think it's, it's become a lot harder to uh, operate in, in Web3 in the UK. So it's something that certain regions of the world are almost opting out of, in a sense, by, by not being as forward thinking. And I know I definitely saw the kind of the Middle East was becoming much more open a number of years ago. And it seemed like every company was moving to Abu Dhabi at one point, and now that's picking up again. I think that's being reinforced by what's happened in the last couple of years. Obviously, one of the things that we mentioned is FTX, right? You can't get away from that. It's still one of the, one of the only things that most laymen know about crypto at the minute as well. I'm interested, what do you think we can learn as an industry from what happened there? Whether or not you want to answer as, as, as a market participant, as someone who's building a business or just as someone who has an opinion, but what do you think we should learn and take from what's happened over the last couple of years with that? 
Yeah, look, I mean, it's such an extreme case. And in some other case, had you asked me for Celsius and others, I would have said it's risk management, which in mm -hmm. many other cases probably wasn't either in place or not followed uh, strictly. There's so much, let's say, non-compliant, fraudulent aspects, and it's almost hard to say what to learn from that. As a service provider, you just don't want to be anywhere near what's been done there based on what's transpiring now. Uh, and I don't think any entity that has third-party audits or that uh, operates in a fully regulated space is is at any risk of doing that because regulators would step in and they would not allow you to that and neither would auditors. Um, so that's just impossible to do. From a from an investor perspective, and that's probably what, what I would say is look for players that A, have a track record, B, are fully regulated, and three, have th third-party audits and perhaps have teams in place who have, you know, the right experience and background to know what they're doing. I think um, we, we're getting this message often from guests is that the narrative maybe in Washington that's changing, hopefully slowly, but is changing around anyone who operates in the Web3 and crypto spaces, a drug dealer, money laundering, all these kind of things, and they don't operate within the regulation, all this kind of stuff. And that narrative is changing. It's that people want to be regulated. They just don't know how because the regulation isn't there. And like you mentioned, I'm glad you mentioned this, is the US tends to operate through enforcement rather than regulation. And they're going to miss out on a lot of things. And one thing, you know, you set up in the UAE and it seemed that seems like the right decision from a regulatory standpoint. And it seems like more and more companies are moving there because of the regulatory certainty there. Is there something about the culture there? Because there's so much happening in terms of Web3 and crypto, is there a certain culture around the UAE right now that you've noticed because of all these trends and moves towards that space? No, look, I mean, it, it's, it comes down to two things. It's, it's to have a government and a leadership in the country that supports crypto, which makes a huge difference because as, as long as both parties want to, you can find the right solutions, you can create the right environment, the right rules, the, the right everything to make that a success. Uh, and then, uh, by now, it's just a matter of the ecosystem being in place. There's so many great projects here, so many founders, OGs who've moved here, uh, international players that set up here or move here. That just if you want to talk crypto, you just need to go out to a bar here. They have the guys working crypto. It's a fantastic place to network and to build ecosystems, to exchange ideas and build things together. Yeah, for sure. I think I'm guessing from everything you said, Stefan, that you're probably a little bit geeky like us when it comes to technology, right? There's lots of interesting applications yeah. happening <laughs> in Web3 generally, right? So moving away from just the pure financial products inside that maybe you're working on M2, is there anything in the wider Web3 movement? Maybe it's in the metaverse space, digital identity, maybe it's, it could be anything. Is there anything you think is really interesting as an application of the underlying technology that we should be thinking about going forward that maybe isn't just in the finance space? To me, definitely digital identities all the way to health records and other things making those more easily shareable across ecosystems is a huge use case. I'm a big fan of that. And I'm, I'm sure that'd be one of the things that, that will be successful faster than many others. Of course, you've got gaming, which, which is an obvious one that, that people are working on. You've got social media uh, that are moving in that, in that space, although I'm, that's not one I'm too sure about. But digital mm -hmm. identities is, is something I'm a big fan of. Okay, good. Yeah, we've got a few episodes on digital identity. It's a huge topic. And obviously, the other one, the buzzword AI, there'll be a lot of overlap between AI, blockchain, how to safeguard these things. But that's exciting to hear. Digital identity is so impactful for the financial sector as well, right? That is going to have implications everywhere. Looking ahead, what does the future look like in 2024 for M2? Is there? Can you give us some insight into your roadmap, some of the opportunities you're pushing towards? 
Oh yeah, we've, we've a packed roadmap. I, th I think in Q1, we'll come up with digital lending. So uh, loans against uh, crypto assets on the platform. We release a payment card. Um, we will have a number of more investment uh, products from structured products, the accumulators uh, and growth vaults. We will have a bunch of improvements, also small improvements on the onboarding process, on user management, just a constant work of learning from what we've done in the first three months and making sure it's more user-friendly. We roll up more assets to be tradable on, on, on M2, and we'll try to expand to more countries. Well, we're definitely into the Mika space. We're looking at the UK, but as you, as you said, regulation is, is not only... It's moving a little bit, right? It, over 2023, it, it seemed a straightforward entry, market entry, but that has changed over the years. So we, we're observing that that close. We'll definitely enter new markets and new territories as well next year. So it's going to be packed. Yeah, it should be an exciting year ahead. And, you know, maybe by the time this episode goes out, we'll even know whether or not the, the ETFs have been approved. I'm sure that will, will have some impact on, on your roadmap too. Is there anything yeah. outside of the ETFs that you're most excited for? Say we got to the end of 2024 right now and you were looking back, what would you like to have seen happen in the industry that would make you really pleased? That's a good question. So ETFs would be, I mean, halving. So, so one, one is everything that impacts price. I'm, I'm extremely bullish about 2024. So anything that moves price up would excite me. That, that's a no-brainer. No, the rest is really mostly around preparing for broader adoption where regulation plays a massive role and europe and mika is, is is on the path of doing great things in 2024 or preparing for great things in 2024 i'd say and other exciting use cases being being rolled on and adopted and rwa as you mentioned earlier is, is a big aspect of that for sure just one final thing i picked up on there right because you i think you've mentioned the halving for bitcoin a couple of times and it's something we also picked up on recently in our kind of looking forward into 2024 crystal ball gazing what do we think is going to happen how significant do you anticipate the bitcoin halving to be because i know there are lots of different opinions on it but do you see this as a big moment where it will have a big impact on price what do you think will be the the outcomes from this i, I think it will have an impact just based on, on historical experience although the impact obviously just mathematically is a lot smaller it's about half the size of the, of the, of the last time so it, it'll become smaller. I, I think of the three, if, if there's three factors that I think will drive price this year, it's, it's obviously the, the ETFs, it's interest rates. That's another obvious one. They've stopped going up. It seems now we might potentially even look at decreasing interest rates. Not sure whether that's going to happen or not. They definitely stopped going up. If they go down, that be a, another big boost for crypto and, and, and equities as well uh, for investment markets. And then there's halving. I think of those three, halving is probably the smallest, in my, my opinion. That's my personal view. But it will have an impact as well. It makes sense, right? It seems like there's more and more demand for Bitcoin than less access to Bitcoin. I think one of the stats that we saw was that 70% of Bitcoin that is in circulation didn't move anywhere last year. So people are attaining and holding and that means there's a lot less for more. And that obviously will drive yeah. the price up. So it's going to be an exciting year. And, and that, that's the story. I mean, if, if you listen to any interviews of Michael Saylor these days, it's, it's all about that, right? It's less <laughs> supply and a lot more demand also because of the ETFs. So that combination and, and institutional entry, that combination is, is extremely powerful. Yeah, and what's his quote? It's like, I always buy at the top. I think that's just, I see that everywhere. I always buy at the top. <laughs> I, I follow that doctrine myself, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The difference is he does not sell at the bottom. That, that, that's my yeah. part about it. <laughs> I see never the price sells. I see the price drop a few K during this episode. So I really hope it's nothing to do with what we're saying, but yeah, yeah I, I had the little flags come up as well. It's like, oh, Jesus. 
um okay this has been a really fantastic episode thank you so much for being here so we we're actually coming to the closing section and we tend to ask our guests two standard questions because we like to see how the answers vary from sector to sector and how they vary over time so if you're ready the first question is probably the more difficult of the two because it's all about doing it concisely in one sentence what is web3 to you web3 to me in one sentence is moving the ownership, the control, and the operation from centralized companies to decentralized individuals. Nice. That was concise. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were going to carry on. Usually someone starts with a sentence. No, no, try, try to keep it concise. <laughs> that was good. I like that one. And the second one is a bit more open. Um, if you could choose anyone uh, alive today or from any time in history, actually, to sit down with and discuss Web3, who would it be and why? That's a good one. So since Web3 ultimately is, is moving from centralized entities to decentralized individuals, there's a lot of smart people have thought about that in the past. Why not have a couple of sharp minds in the room and have them sort it out? I'd, I'd go with Adam Smith and Menard Keynes on, on, the, on the DeFi side of it, and perhaps mm -hmm. Karl Marx and, and Milton Friedman on the more centralized and hands-on and control approach and have them hash it out. Yeah, that would be an interesting dinner for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see that. I'd love to see the Austrians fighting Adam Smith over, over dinner. That would be very interesting. <laughs> Stefan, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I've really enjoyed this episode. Thank you for, for sparing some time and wish you best of luck for the rest of the exciting things to happen in the year. And to our audience, thank you for joining us wherever you may be. And we'll join you next time to untangle a little more of Web3. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Untangling Web3, produced by Emma Camilleri. Don't forget to send us your thoughts, questions, and comments on social media. And be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast provider to catch the next episode. See you next time to untangle a little bit more of Web3. The views we express here are our own and do not reflect the views of our employers.